Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse number 20, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have you have faith in God? Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes What he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Theologian E. Stauffer says this. He says, the faith of Mark 11, chapter 23, chapter 11, verse 23, is a faith that prays. Prayer is the source of its power and the means of its strength. God's omnipotence is its assurance and God's sovereignty its only restriction. Forgive me if I get behind on the slides, all right? As we have gone through this series, walking through the Gospel of Mark, we have covered a whole lot of ground, and we have talked about very many, many important things. And if you remember, we began this series with an emphasis on discipleship. That's why we actually called this series Following Jesus. It is about discipleship, being a disciple or a follower of Christ, because Jesus said, follow me. You see, the Christian life is not simply about believing some facts about God and then saying amen, and then simply meeting once a week with like-minded people in a building and giving up things like cussing and watching R-rated movies and secular music. It's not simply about owning a Bible or or praying at mealtimes or giving something in the offering plate once in a while. The Christian life is about repenting of our sin and turning to Christ alone in faith so that he would save us from our sin, the sin that's killing us and destroying the world around us, and that he would save us from the wrath of God that will one day finish the job. It's about being transformed into something new. As the Bible tells us, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God changed our hearts supernaturally to give us new life. That's why we call it being born again. You are a new creature. The new birth brings with it a new nature, And also a radically different kind of life than before. And that natural life, the outflow of that natural life, that that supernatural life, that new life, is a desire to go where Christ goes and a desire to go where he leads. And that's why we become Christ followers, right? The call isn't just to believe some things about Jesus and then to mentally assent to those things. The call is to follow him. And that's why we named the series Following Jesus. That's why we're, we're going through the book of Mark the way that we are, because it's a wonderful book that helps us to see what it means to be like Christ. 
and what it means to actually follow him like his disciples did. And throughout this series, we've explored a huge part of Jesus' life and his ministry. And we've talked about many big theological issues like who God is and his sovereign nature. We've talked about who we are in light of who God is. Because you're never going to make sense of who you are unless you understand who God is first. We also talked about the nature of Christ, that he's both fully man but also fully God. And then we talked about the nature of salvation itself, that salvation is the work of God. It's a supernatural, miraculous work of God. And we've covered a lot of theological ground at this point in the book of Mark, but, but in this book we've also been intensely practical as well. We've learned a lot about how to take what, what we, we were uncovering in the text and, and what we've been talking about and taking those things and applying them to our lives. It's not just about being hearers of the word, but then being doers of the word, right? We were learning what it actually means to follow Jesus, practically speaking. Well, today, as we're going to wrap up this little mini-series on Mark, chapter 11, we're going to get really very practical today. And the subject of today's message is extremely practical because the subject of today's message should not be a surprise to you. If you read that text, right, you will understand that it is about prayer, right? And today's text is about the power of prayer. And it's about the effective or the keys to effective prayer, right? When you look at this text, it's about the power of prayer and the keys to effective prayer in the life of the Christian. Now, the truth is, prayer is vitally important. It's, a very, it's an important part of the Christian life. It's indispensable. In fact, Martin Luther, <clears throat> the reformer um, over 500 years ago, or nearly 500 years ago, said that to be a Christian without prayer is, is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Right? I don't think that there's hyperbole in that. I think that's the truth. Let me say that again. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is a vitally important part of the Christian life. Right? Um, Ian Bounds said, Prayer should not be regarded as a duty which is to be performed, but rather a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of, of, of preachers, says, True prayer is neither a mere mental exercise or a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. Prayer is a vital and indispensable and, and really you know, a, a fundamental part of the Christian life. And if you're a note taker, there are three things I, you need to note, all right? Three things that if you don't take anything else from this, these are the things you need to note. Number one, prayer is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind, right? If you don't understand that, then you don't understand who God is and you don't understand what prayer is. Prayer is one of the greatest gifts to all of mankind. God has given us the finite sinner, the ability to come and walk into his presence and start talking to him, Anytime we want to, and he hears us. That is an incredible gift. I mean, how many of you feel that you have the ability to walk into somebody else's house and interrupt a conversation and just start talking to them? Now, maybe your kids can do that to you when you're not irritated or too busy, but you can even understand that, that you have more grace for them. You, the sinner who hated God, who rebelled against God, who did everything in your power to run away from God, Right? 
You have the privilege to come before him and pray anytime you want to, and he hears you. Right? Thomas Brooks says, The best and sweetest flowers of paradise God gives to his people when they are upon their knees. Prayer is the gate to heaven. Right? One of God's greatest gifts to mankind is prayer. Number two, prayer is one of the most powerful instruments any Christian has access to. And I'm not overstating that. Me. Prayer is one of the most powerful instruments that any Christian has access to. Prayer is the power to change the world. Prayer is the power to change lives. Prayer is even the power to change ourselves. R.C. Sproul says, prayer does change things, all kinds of things. But the most important thing that it changes is us as we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately. That growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to him. Prayer changes us profoundly. Prayer is one of the most powerful instruments any Christian has access to. And then number three, prayer is the, the, one of the most underutilized and underappreciated of all of God's gifts. I'm going to say that one more time. That should be, bring conviction to your heart because it does mine. Prayer is one of the most underutilized and underappreciated of all of God's gifts. The fact of the matter is, we simply don't pray enough. You know how I know? It's because I see the way the world is. I see how many of our lives are. I know that if we prayed fervently, individually, and as a church, that things could be and would be different. We as Christians just don't pray enough. And I think that the reason why is, I don't think that we always understand that the gift that we have, that we've been given, and and the power of that gift. And, and, And so, if you don't get anything else out of these messages, these are the three points that I want you to take home with you. These are three points that should shape how you view prayer. Number one, it is one of God's greatest gifts. Number two, it's it's one of the most powerful instruments that you have access to in your life. More powerful than your money, more powerful than your friends, more powerful than political connections, more powerful than electricity and high-speed internet, right? It's one of the most powerful tools you have access to in your life. The only thing more powerful is God himself. And number three, prayer is the most underutilized and underappreciated of all of God's gifts. We simply don't know what we have, right? So many of us don't realize. I mean, like what happens for many of you who have a computer at home and you start messing around like a Microsoft Word and you think that's pretty cool, you have no idea even at all what that's capable of doing. There's more to it than you could possibly imagine, and it's the same with prayer. And this right here is the overarching theme of this message today that we're, we're going to wrap up Mark 11 with. And, this is the, and, and the theme of this text is two things. It is the power of prayer and the keys to effective prayer, which I've already mentioned to you. Right? If you want to understand what this text is about, it's about the power of prayer and the keys to effective prayer. But unfortunately, for, for many of us, right, this theme gets lost Because these verses right here are some of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood and misapplied in all of the book of Mark, if not the entire New Testament. I mean, these are verses that people will just get wrong. 
Along with, with the previous section, what we talked about with the judgment of Israel, right? these are continually taken out of context. And these six verses that we're going to look at today are used over and over again for proof texts, that people will use these as proof texts to support a number of false beliefs, like, for instance, the prosperity gospel. I hope that you guys, I mean, as much as we've talked about this, I hope you are all convinced that the prosperity gospel is a heresy from, from the devil himself, right? But there are people who believe in the prosperity gospel, and they'll use a text like this, and they will say, see, God will give you everything you want. God has promised you to give you whatever you ask if you will just pray in faith and believe, if you believe that God's already given it to you, then it's good as yours. They will, they will say that the key to you getting what you want out of life and, and you getting what you want from God is you just have to pray hard enough and believe hard enough with all your heart and then God is bound to give it to you. He has to because you believed. You have to pray believing though, asking Right? As if it's already yours. This is name it and claim it theology. This is where that comes from. And they teach if you don't get what you want, it's not God's fault. It's yours. You know why? Because you just didn't believe enough. If you were praying for that house and you didn't get it, then that's your fault because you just didn't have enough faith. You didn't really believe. You didn't trust in God. Because if you really trusted God and if you were really confident in him, that he would have given you that house or he would have given you that, that car or he would have given you that job or that, that girlfriend. Or he would have healed your mom's cancer. It's your fault that your, that your sibling died because you didn't have enough faith to, to get them healed. You see how dangerous this turns really, really quickly? Well, this is not what this text is about at all. In fact, this understanding is contrary to the rest of Scripture. When you read the full counsel of Scripture, you will find that that at all doesn't even fit within the same universe. Secondly, there are legalists who, who will say when they read Verse 25, verse 25 says, Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they will say, you see, if you don't forgive somebody, then you're probably not saved. If you don't forgive somebody, you're in danger of going to hell. They will teach that your salvation hangs in the balance of your ability to forgive every person that you come in contact with, no matter who they are and no matter what they have done. And they believe that you struggling to forgive is a sign that you actually might not be saved. Because God says, you know, you got to forgive to be forgiven. And then they'll even go to verse 26, which is in the King James Version and the New American Standard Version of the Bible, but not in the ESV or many other modern translations. But it says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. They will use it as a proof text, completely ignoring that might, that might not even be in the original Greek to start with. And even then, that's a big jump to make that connection, right? They will say, see, forgiving others is essential to your salvation. That's a prerequisite to be saved, ignoring what the rest of Scripture says, like when Paul says that you are justified by faith, right? Or when Paul makes it even more clear in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, and no one may boast. And then... There are the literalists who will, will believe that Jesus is literally teaching that, that if you had enough faith, that you can actually literally move a mountain simply by, by praying it. 
Right? Now, this might or might not be related to the prosperity gospel, but there are some people who will even say they reject the prosperity gospel, but they believe that Jesus is literally saying here that if you have enough faith to go stand in Lone Pine and say to Mount Whitney, be cast into the sea, that if you have enough faith, that, that will literally actually happen, hopefully not creating a tsunami wiping out Japan in the process. Not recognizing the fact that there are times in the scriptures that Jesus actually speaks in hyperbole, where, where Jesus speaks in extremes to make his point, because that's what Jesus is doing here. He's making a broader, more important point about prayer. And all of these false teachers and many more are so taught so widely in the Western world that the problem is that they diminish the actual importance of this text and what Jesus is communicating at best, but they also lead many people to outright heresy and lead many people to, to, to embrace a false faith at worst. At best, it can derail us theologically. At worst, it can lead people to hell. Which demonstrates, again, once for us, once more, our need for proper Bible interpretation. You see, we not only need to read the Bible, but we also need to interpret the text. Because every verse of the Scriptures, every verse of the Bible needs to be interpreted. Everything that we read needs to be interpreted. Now, some people get interpretation and translation confused. They think that when you translate from one language to the next, that's interpreting. No, that's translation. They're not the same. Translations reveal what a text actually says in another language in our common language, right? Translations take a text from Greek and then puts them into, into English words so that we can read them. Right? And, and, and know what, what the text actually says. Interpretation, on the other hand, reveals what the text actually means. For instance, let me illustrate this for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus in, in John chapter 8, verse 58. I tell you, before Abraham was, and then he, in Greek says, ego, I me. He says, before Abraham was, ego I me. And ego I me gets translated into English as I am. So, so Jesus literally said, before Abraham was, I am. That's what it says. But what does the translation actually mean? What it means when we properly interpret that text is what Jesus is saying is, I am God. That's what he's saying. You see, what the text says and what it means requires a little work to fully understand that. That's why we must interpret the text. We as Christians must learn not to just read the text, but, but, but understand what the text itself means. It's how we, how we grow in our understanding of God. That's how we, we learn about who he is and by what he says. Now, sometimes an individual text means something very simple and it's easy to read and discern when you read it. It's very, very plain on the surface. Like, for instance, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I, I think the meaning of that text is pretty clear. In the beginning, God created all things, everything, all things that are not him, right? And, and guess what? That means there was a beginning for all of the things besides God. I think the meaning of the text is very clear, right? But then there are some times when the meaning of the text isn't quite so clear, especially in English, and it's hard for us to discern. And, and guess what? Not only do we struggle with the meaning of text, but even Peter himself struggled with the meaning of text. Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
beginning in verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, his letters, that are hard to understand. That's what Peter's saying. Right? which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter is saying that sometimes the meaning of the text is hard to understand, and sometimes people in their misunderstanding misinterpret the text and twist them around to mean something they're not supposed to mean. That's why we must interpret every text. And so we must do so in light of the context. Now, some will say, well, wait a minute, that's stupid. I just, I just need to read the Bible. I don't need to interpret the Bible. In fact, I gave somebody some books one time, one day. Right? I gave them some commentaries on the Bible and some books on the Bible because I was interested to see them grow. They seemed to be expressing an interest in theology, so I gave them some books, right? And they said, I don't need that. No, thank you. And I go, why? And they were like, well, because I, I don't read books on the Bible. I just, <clears throat> I just read the Bible. Okay, what, is, what does that mean? And at first, it kind of sounds spiritual, right? I don't read books on the Bible. I just, I just read the Bible. That's actually not spiritual. It's actually borderline arrogant. Because I want you to think about this. The Bible is a collection of 66 individual books written over a period of 1,500 years by 40, over 40 different authors in three different languages. And all of that work was completed about 2,000 years ago. And each one of those authors has his own background, his own experience, his own historical and cultural context, and each book was written not specifically to you. I know that might seem strange, but it wasn't. It was written to an intended audience back then who themselves had a common language, a common culture, history, and background with the author that you don't have. And each author wrote in a literary style that was common to their time. And sometimes the authors were, were, were literal in what they said. And sometimes they were allegorical in what they said. And, and many times they used common expressions and idioms in the text that made sense then that just don't make any sense in modern day. And you don't believe me? There are idioms that made sense in the 1940s that people have no idea what people are talking about today. And even now, there are idioms being used by younger people. I go, what in the world did you just say? Right? Not to mention the fact that these texts were translated now from the original languages into English, and if we were to be honest with ourselves, is a sloppy and imprecise language to be translating languages into. Let me give you an example, right? In English, we have one word for the word love. I love pizza. I love my wife. I love sunny days. I love Jesus. One word, obviously many different meanings. But in the Greek, there are four different words for the same word love. You have phileo, which is brotherly love or, or love of friends. Then you have storge, which is the love that, that people feel for their, their children. It's a natural affection. And then you have eros, which is the love between a man and a woman. And then you have the love agapeo, which is the, which is the, the greatest possible love, which is the love of the will, the love of the volition. It's the unconditional love. And this is just one example. Greek is replete with, with many different words and tenses that we have no idea even what they are. And this is just one example. Not to mention, we are thousands of years removed from the writings of these scriptures in a completely different culture. Our culture is not even the same today as it was in January. Do you understand that, right? Like, like we live in a different world than we did in January. 
So yes, we need to do more than just simply read a text. We need to interpret each text of Scripture in its original context to fully understand it. And that's what we're going to do with this text here. My aim is to help you to really have your head wrapped around what this text, not only what it says, but what it means. And so turn with me to Mark chapter 11, beginning in in verse 20. It says, And they paused in the morning... And as they, excuse me, and as they, they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its root. Now, what we need to recognize is this verse right here is a transition between the events that have just happened before and the teaching that's about to take place now. There's a connection here, and this is the transition, right? This verse helps us to set up the context, right? So what has happened before? Well, as you may remember in chapter 11, chapter 11 is a major transition in this story. This is when things begin to move really, really fast. The first 10 chapters, if you remember, was was three years, three and a half years of Jesus' life and his ministry on earth. The the last seven chapters from 11 to 16 are going to be the span of about a week. Right? Things are going to pick up really, really, really fast. And this includes the, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And in chapter 11, we see how all this changes. Jesus finally confirms who he is and that he declares himself by his actions that he is the Messiah. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as the king and the city is electric with excitement and expectations for what he's about to do next. And then the first thing he does is visit the Temple Mount And then anticlimactically, he goes home, right? But then the very next day, he gets up and encounters the fig tree full in leaf that has no fruit on it. And then he uses the opportunity to act out a living parable in front of his disciples, right? And he curses the tree, which is really a pronouncement of judgment against what that tree symbolized, which is the nation of Israel. And then he goes into the temple And then he drives out the money changers and the merchants, drawing all kinds of attention to himself and to the fact that Israel was being judged for their lack of fruits. Because Israel had become hypocrites, pretending to be righteous, looking good on the outside, but within failing to do what God had created them to do, which was to draw the nations to God. And so Jesus, as the king, curses the fig tree, drives out the money changers in dramatic fashion, and now it's the following day, and it says here, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Christ, by his word, had destroyed this tree. But notice how Peter then reacts to this. It says in verse 21, and Peter remembered and said, excuse me, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now what I want you to realize here, that this expression by Peter is not simply a statement of facts, but it's an expression of surprise. He was surprised to see that the tree had so quickly withered away. It's almost like, I can't believe it. Notice how he says it. Look, Rabbi, look, like a little kid. The tree that you had cursed is now dead to its roots. Almost like, what a coincidence. Wow, right? I just can't believe it. Peter and the apostles were really kind of shocked by this. But notice how Jesus responds. He says to them, have faith in God. 
Now, I don't know about you, but this is the place in the story that I had to stop and ask the question, why would he say that? That doesn't make any sense that he would just go there. Because we would expect at this point that Jesus, would, what he would do is what we saw him do before in Mark, is that he would take the time to explain you know, what was happening in the living parable. I mean, that's what he did. He, he gave a parable, and then he would then turn around and explain that. But Jesus didn't do that here. You'd expect him to, to talk about right, that and say, of course the tree is withered. I curse that as an illustration of what's going to happen to Israel. Israel's going to be judged for hypocrisy and lack of fruit. See, tree, fruit, Israel, fruit, you know, that he would draw the connection because Israel's failing to do what they were created to do. That's what you would expect out of Jesus, but that's not at all what he does here. He says to them, have faith in God, which I think, again, still seems strange because don't they already have faith in God? You see, Jesus doesn't do what, he's, what we expect him to do, but instead, he tells them and reminds them of an important truth. And he does so for a couple of important reasons. Number one, Jesus said to Peter, as a mild rebuke, this. He's rebuking Peter in essence. Jesus is rebuking his disciples because, because really, Peter and his disciples should not have been surprised by this. They should have had enough faith to expect this out of them. They should have saw that and go, well, of course that happened. He cursed the tree. Why wouldn't they react that way? I mean, they saw Jesus heal people and cast out demons. They saw him feed 5,000 people at one time, 4,000 people at another time. They saw him walk on water, calm the storm twice, raise people from the dead. And then they saw him, at least three of them saw him, transfigured upon the mountain. So why wouldn't they expect to see this? Why would that surprise them? They should have expected it, but still they're struggling. They're still struggling with, with spiritual blindness and, 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 and the reality is they still lacked faith. I mean, if you think about all the times in Mark, how many times has Jesus said to them, why do you still not have faith? Why do you have so little faith? Jesus is reminding them of the foundational truth that they need to have faith in God. The second reason why he does this is because he's pointing them back to the ultimate source of power. There is no other ultimate source of power but God himself. He is telling them to have faith in God because he's the one who's all-powerful. He is the one who's sovereign. He is the one who's in control. He is the one who can do all things. Have faith in him. Trust in him. And the third reason he says this is because this truth about having faith in God is the foundation for everything else he's going to teach them about prayer. Having faith in God is the foundation on which he's going to teach them about the power of prayer and the keys to being effective in your prayer. And so instead of explaining them the meaning of what just happened, he used this as an opportunity to continue to disciple and to train his, his followers and teach them. He uses what happened and their surprise to what happened to teach them an important lesson about one of the most important issues in all of Christian life, which is the issue of prayer. As we said, three things, right? Prayer is one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. Prayer is one of the most powerful instruments of any Christian has access to. And prayer is one of the most underutilized and underappreciated of all of God's gifts. That is true now. It is also true then. That's why Jesus takes the time 
to talk with him about the power of prayer and the foundation of effective prayer. And so Jesus teaching them, so he, he, he begins teaching them about the power of prayer. It's the first thing that he does. Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. What Jesus means, right? But what he says, what, what Jesus means by what he says here, is that prayer in faith is powerful, okay? What Jesus means by what he's saying here, the thing that you need to take home from this, is that prayer given in faith is powerful. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this, right? What Jesus is saying is that prayer is powerful. Your prayers as a Christian are powerful. More powerful than you can even imagine or realize, this is a weakness of Christianity, that for some reason we do not believe this truth. We do not hold on to this truth. Otherwise, if you actually believe this, you would pray more. Your prayers that are given in faith to a sovereign God are powerful. But understand, Jesus is not saying that you can literally move a mountain with your prayers. He's not saying that you have supernatural powers when you pray. What he's saying is that when you pray in faith, right, you're talking to the one who can actually move mountains. You're talking to the one who can actually do what is impossible. Because what is impossible for God? Nothing, as the Word of God tells us, right? Nothing is impossible with God. That's why when we pray, right, we will pray for people who have cancer. We will pray for God to heal marriages. We will pray for God to end addictions. We will pray for God to change people's hearts because these things are impossible for us, right? Because you can't heal cancer. You can't change people's hearts. We can't cause people to repent and believe the gospel, but the God in the, 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 who is sovereign, the God who is all-powerful can. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for him. That is why we pray to him in faith, because prayer can change the world. Prayer is powerful. But let's be clear on where that power comes from. Notice Jesus says, have faith in God. And then he says, believe. You see, your prayers are not powerful because of you. Your prayers are not powerful because, because you prayed them. Your prayers are not powerful because you're the super Christian who never ever misses church and you come to Bible study seven times a week. Your prayers are powerful because of the one that you're praying to. You see, the prosperity gospel and, and, and those who preach it will tell you that your prayers are powerful because your faith is powerful. And they will say that your faith has a substance to it and a power of its own and that your faith and your prayers have the power to move God. That's, that's, that's why you have to pray and exercise faith because, because your, your faith and prayers have power. And the reason why your prayers are powerful and the reason why your faith is powerful, hear me, is not because of you. And it's not because of your faith. These things are powerful because of the object of those things. The object of your faith is all-powerful. The object of your prayers is sovereign. In fact, 
He's the one who's given you the faith in the first place. He is the one who empowers you to be able to pray. And we pray to him not because, we, because our meager words can move mountains, but because he is the omnipotent, sovereign, reigning God of the universe who, can, who moving mountains would be a little thing for him. We pray to him because, because we believe that he absolutely, without question, can do the impossible. We also pray to him because it reminds us of, of how awesome and powerful he is. And at the same time, it reminds us of how weak and helpless we are. It helps us to get the right perspective again. As R.C. Sproul says, let me remind you what he says. Prayer changes, does change things, all kinds of things, but the most important thing that it changes is us. And we engage in this, as we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to him. Prayer changes us profoundly. Prayer changes us, and prayer is actually, I don't know if you realize it, but it's your theology in action. Do you, do you understand that? Because what does our theology tell us? God is infinite. God is holy, righteous, and perfect. But we, on the other hand, are finite, fallen beings. Prayer is actually us acting out of theology because we, feeble, broken, weak creatures, come humbly before the only one that can do anything about our lives and our problems anyway. The almighty, perfect, holy, righteous creator of the world. Prayer at its core is an acknowledgement of our, of our nature and, and our relationship with God. We come to God in prayer by His grace. We come to Him right, in prayer because we're dependent upon Him. Praying to Him indicates our dependence upon Him. And as we come to Him in prayer, we submit to Him because He's the one who's sovereign and not us. And that and what prayer is saying, what Jesus is saying here is those who trust in God and those who have faith in God and believe that God can do the impossible, if they will pray and trust in Him, they will see God do incredible things. Do you pray believing and trusting that God can and will do incredible things? When you pray, are you confident that what you're praying for, that God absolutely can do what you're asking Him to do? John MacArthur in his study Bible says this, Jesus' point here is if believers sincerely trust in God and truly realize the unlimited power that is available through such faith in Him, they will see His mighty powers at work. That's what Jesus is saying, is if you will believe and trust in God and pray confidently expecting God to move, you're going to see Him move. Prayer is powerful because God, the object of your faith, is powerful. And so Jesus talks here about the power of prayer, right? And then he gives us the keys to effective prayer. This is the part that people get lost in, but let me walk you through this. Verse 24 says, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be, it will be yours. Now, this is the verse where people get really tripped up about. This is the part because people will read this and say, see, Jesus just said that. He just said it. He said that if you just believe, if you pray and you really, really believe, then God has to give you what you want because he said it. He said it right there in, the, in black and white. He said it. Right? You can have what you want if you just pray in faith. This text is not about you getting what you want. 
Let me just be really, really clear. This text is not about you getting what you want. This text is about you getting what you want when what you want honors God and is in accordance to his will. John Calvin actually dealt with this issue nearly 500 years ago himself. He wrote about this and he says, and and forgive the the language, it's translated from from French, right? Didn't John Calvin write in French? Into English, and it was, anyway, just follow along. He says, for though God has promised to do whatsoever his people may ask, he, yet he does not allow them an unbridled liberty to ask whatever may come to their minds, but he has at the same time prescribed to them a law according to which they are to pray. And doubtless nothing is better for us than this restriction, for if it was allowed to everyone of us to ask what he pleased, and if God were to indulge us in our wishes, it would be to provide very badly for us. For what may be expedient, we know not, nay, boil over the corrupt and hurtful desires. In other words, if God gave us all what we wanted, we'd all be in trouble. Okay? The fact is, God's not going to always give you what you want. Because not everything that you want is good for you. And not everything that you want is actually good, even though you might think it is in the moment. I mean, we all, I mean, that's why they have such thing called buyer's remorse, right? That's why there's a three-day, you know, opt-out when you sign contracts. That's why when you go to the auto dealership, they say, hey, by the way, there's no cooling off period. You make this decision, you live with this decision, right? Not everything you want is good. And not everything you want honors God, and it's good for your relationship with him. And much of what we want can be harmful, even though we can't see it in the moment. Harmful to us and our relationship with other people and our relationship with God. So Jesus doesn't mean that you can have whatever you want, and if you'll just pray and believe hard enough, right? He's not saying that if you pray to God for a brand new Ferrari. I used to do this, by the way. If, if, he's not saying if you pray to God for a brand new Ferrari and really, really believe with all your heart that God is bound to give it to you. The truth is God will give you what you want when it's in accordance to his will. And there are times where God says no, even if you really, really believe. Like the Apostle Paul. Paul had a physical infirmity, and he asked Christ three times to remove it from him. He was begging him to remove it from him. And what did Christ say? My grace is sufficient for you. No. Right? And, and let me just going to tell you, okay? Brothers and sisters, I don't want to hurt your feelings, okay? But if Paul can be told no, so can you, okay? So this is not a prescription to pray to God with an expectation. He must answer all your, your, your questions and indulge all your whims, right? Because the truth is he's not going to. So what is Jesus actually then saying here? What does he actually mean by what he says? Well, to uncover this, what we need to do is we need to address a word that people just will read past and overlook as they read it, and it's the word therefore, right? It is the word that connects the dots for us here. You see, the word therefore connects what Jesus has just said, what he's about to say. And this includes, by the way, verses 24 and 25, because another important word in here is the word and. You can't leave that out. Right? Verses 24 and 25 go together, and they're connected to verses 23, 22 and 23. And they're connected by the word therefore. 
In fact, let me just trace this out for you so you can stop guessing. Jesus says, have faith in God and pray to him expecting the impossible because he can do anything is what he's basically saying in 22 and 23. And then he says, therefore, or in light of that then, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever, whenever you stand praying, forgive and if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So what Jesus is saying is this. The nature, uh, the nature of prayer is powerful because you're praying to the almighty sovereign God who can do the impossible. And in light of that truth, then, the key to you effectively praying powerful prayers is two things. One is to have faith in God and believe. And two, you need to forgive. That's the point of what he's saying here. Right? Let me read this again so you can, can you put the pieces together. He says, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. One of the keys to powerful and effective prayer is faith and confidence in God and his ability to, to answer your prayers. And then he says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The second key to effective, powerful prayer is forgiveness. That's what he is saying here. Let me, let me summarize this for you. Jesus is saying, after Peter, who is completely surprised by this tree that was destroyed by the word, he says, have faith in God. And then pray to him, expecting for God to do incredible things because, because nothing is impossible for God, not even moving this mountain in the sea. Therefore, in light of that, when you pray, you need to pray with a deep trust and faith in God. And you also need to pray in a spirit of forgiveness because you, because what could be more hypocritical than asking God who has forgiven you of so much to do something for you when you've simply refused to forgive someone else who hasn't sinned against you nearly as bad as you sinned against God. That's what he's saying here. Jesus explains to us the power of prayer, the unlimited, unimaginable power of prayer. And then he tells us, if you want to pray like this and have powerful prayers, here are two things that you need to get right. The keys to effective prayer. You must pray in faith to God and you must also pray in the spirit of forgiveness. Because the two things that will hamper your prayer life the two things that will make your that will render your prayer life impotent is a lack of faith in the one you're praying to and is unforgiveness in your heart that's consuming you now let's get really practical here now because theologically, I think we know, right? We're at a place where we know that God is all-powerful and sovereign. I mean, if you heard me preach, you'd know that I'll use throw that word around a lot. And he is the one who by his grace that rescued us and brought us into a relationship with him and made us part of his family. He's the one who reconciled us and he's given us this incredible gift of prayer. Right? He's given us the ability to come to him anytime in any circumstance and stand before the throne of grace and open our mouths and speak to him. Right? And, 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 he, and he asks us to come to him. Right? That's what we know about him. Right? But how do we apply then this, these things to our lives? Well, 
First, let's talk about faith. How do we actively exercise faith in our prayer life? I mean, because it seems like simple to say, well, just believe in God. Okay, what does that mean? How, how, how do, you know, Jesus was pretty clear. You need to really, really believe. What, what does that mean? How does that relate to prayer? Well, the first thing that we need to believe Sorry about that, I got behind there. The first thing that you need to, we need to, to believe is that God hears you. Right? That's the first thing that you need to believe. Because I think that, that, that we as Christians, we really don't always believe that. There's something in us, you know, at least subconsciously, that thinks that God's just too busy for us. That we're just not that important. That God's not so concerned about us. That God is just, you know, not really interested in the lives of me. I mean, they would be interested in, in someone like Diana Wise because she's so nice and loving, but she's definitely not interested in somebody like me. Right? That God is not really interested in my prayers. He doesn't really listen to me because I'm such a bad, horrible person. Right? But understand, if God has saved you, if God has changed your heart, and made you part of his family, he listens to you and he hears your prayers. When you pray, you need to believe that the moment you begin praying, that you have the undivided attention of the sovereign reigning king. He is listening to you. That should humble you, but it also should inspire you and encourage you. Right? Charles Spurgeon says about this very subject is, if you believe in prayer at all, accept God to hear you, if you do not expect you will not have. God will not hear you unless you believe he will hear you. But if you believe he will, he will be as good as your faith. Hear me, brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Maybe this is the encouragement that you need today, but when you come before God and you humble yourself at the throne of grace in prayer, God is listening to you. Yes, even you. He hears your prayers. Doesn't that immediately just change how you see the world? Every single word. So believe that. Trust that. God loves you enough to save you that he loves you enough to listen to you and hear your prayers. In fact, he invites us and exhorts us over and over and over again to come to him in prayer of all things. Second thing that you need to believe is that God wants what is best for you. I think sometimes we just tend to be fatalistic in our own lives, believing that we're just destined for things to just always be horrible. Right? You need to believe that God wants what's best for you, no matter what's going on in your life right now. God has promised to work all things out for your good. Even the worst possible things, even the most disastrous things, even the things you think there's no way that anything good's going to come of this, that God can take and does take all things and work them out for those who, who love him and are called according to his purpose. He wouldn't, wouldn't have written that down if he didn't mean it. So when you pray, pray confident that God not only loves you and not only is listening to you, but he wants what's best for you, the same that you want what's best for your children. You know, when you're listening to your kids Right? And they might not understand where you're coming from, but you absolutely do want what's best for them. God is likened to that, but even to a greater degree. So you need, you need to believe when you pray that he hears you and that he wants what's best for you. And third, we need to believe that God can do the impossible because he's God. And again, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't think we pray 
for the impossible things because I think we don't always believe that God can do the impossible. Because why? It's impossible, right? There's a part of us that gets kind of guarded about the impossible things. I mean, we'll pray for somebody to get healed of their cold, but when it gets really, really hard, we just like, ah, you know, if God does it, he does it great. I'm not going to pray about it because it's really impossible. I believe that you can measure your faith in God by the number of impossible things that you're asking God to do. I'm going to say that again. I believe that you can measure your faith by the number of things in your life that you're asking God to do that are impossible. Because if you really believe that he does the impossible, you'd be praying for the impossible all the time. Because I'm telling you what what the world needs around us right now is some pretty impossible stuff. What some of us need in our lives is impossible stuff. What some of us, our family members need is really, really impossible. But God continually does the impossible all the time around us. In fact, you know one of the most important or one of the most impossible things that, that God can do? It's not moving a mountain. It's changing someone's heart. You can't change anyone else's heart, no matter how much you try. No matter how much you beg, no matter how much you give, no matter how much you, you know, try to manipulate circumstances, that's what the world is doing right now. They're trying to tra- tra- you know, change people's hearts through emotions and through, through protests and, and through, through legislations and laws. Right? You cannot change someone's heart. You can't even change your own heart. It's impossible. But God can, and he does it all the time. God changes hearts all the time. God takes sinners who are dead in their sins and their trespasses and he makes them alive again all the time. If you're a Christian, you have seen that. If you're a Christian, you're a walking, living example of the impossible. You, you realize that, right? <clears throat> I, mean, I know full well who this guy was. I knew exactly how I felt about God and it was not good. And there was nothing humanly possible that was going to change that. God can and does do the impossible. And so pray, believing that truth. Pray with confidence that that he can heal your loved ones. Pray that God can overcome addictions in the lives of those that you love. I'm witnessing that happening right now. Pray that God can heal relationships. Pray that God... can change somebody's heart. We need to pray and believe that God hears us and that God wants what's best for us and that he absolutely, unquestionably can do the impossible. And then we need to learn to pray in the spirit of forgiveness. And this is probably the hardest part of the whole message. Because how how do we do that? Right? I mean, let's just be honest. Some of us, perhaps all of us, maybe are struggling with forgiveness, at least for some person in the world around us. But look what Jesus said, forgive if you have anything against anyone. John MacArthur and his notes say this, that this is an all-inclusive statement which includes both sins and simple dislikes which cause the believer to hold something against another person. And the word anyone incorporates believers and unbelievers. Just in case you want to say, well, I don't have to forgive unbelievers. 
Jesus states that believers' ongoing duty is to have a forgiving attitude. Successful prayer requires forgiveness as well as faith. The key part of effective, powerful prayer is to forgive. Any questions about that? Now, praise the Lord. Jesus isn't saying you need to forgive perfectly or you're not saved. Because <laughs> I'm going to tell you, if, if, if that's the standard, right, then we're all in trouble. Because I know you all and I love you all. And I know that some of you are really, really growing, but I know that all of you all still have some struggles with the whole forgiveness department. All of us do. But what he's reminding us is the, is, the, is the hypocrisy of being forgiven and then coming to God and asking for things and at the same time being unwilling to forgive. That's the difference. Struggling to forgive is different than being unwilling to forgive. It's hypocritical. And God, as we have seen, detests hypocrisy. The truth is when we approach God in, in prayer and in faith, we ought to be reminded of who God is and who we are. And that should move our hearts to humility because we understand that God owes us nothing but his judgment. And not only did he spare us of that, but then he allowed us to be part of his family and then invites us to come to him in faith, praying to him and asking for incredible, impossible things. Not because we deserve it, right? But because he is gracious. The act of prayer should humble our hearts Enough to open the door for us to forgive. Otherwise, we are withholding the very thing that God is giving to us. So the key to effective prayer is forgiveness. But Sherman, you don't know. You don't understand. It's so hard to forgive. Forgiving is hard. I mean, you just don't know the people what they've done to me. You know how they've hurt me and how the feelings just keep welling up inside of me. I feel like it's impossible to forgive him. So how do I do that? Well, you pray to God that he would change your heart and do the impossible and help you to forgive. I think that's a good place to start. Because God hears you and he wants what's best for you. What's best for you is to be forgiving and that God can do the impossible. He can change your unforgiving heart. So pray that God would change your heart and that he would help you then to forgive. Brothers and sisters, your prayers to God are more powerful than you can imagine. But the key to effective prayer is absolute faith in him and to walk in a spirit of forgiveness, trusting that when you fail, God will make up the difference by his grace in you. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.